They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron and I'm your host. My guest today is Stefan Kinsella. He's an intellectual property lawyer and author of the groundbreaking book, I just love it, uh, Against Intellectual Property. He's also founder and director of the Center of the Study of Innovative Freedom and founder and executive editor of Libertarian Papers, a, a journal of libertarian scholarship that uh, ran from 2009 to 2018. You've seen his writing on Mises.org and LewRockwell.com. And if I were making a list of 10 books to, to fix the world from a political and economic perspective, uh, his book uh, Against Intellectual Property would be on that list. Stefan has also recently joined the LP around the time that uh, Tom Woods, Scott Horton, Dave Smith, etc. decided to do that. And he's in our Mises Caucus group on Facebook. It's great to have him on board. And I hope you enjoy my interview with Stefan Kinsella. Welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Hey there. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we started interacting uh, a couple, three weeks ago. You messaged the the Mises Caucus Facebook page. And uh, of course, I knew uh, who you were and and uh, had read the your IP book. Um, so I was excited to have you. Uh, you joined our Facebook group, I think. And so it's uh, it's great to have you on board. Um, what's your experience with the LP if any, in the past? Um, well, you know, I went to an LP meeting at LSU when I was an undergrad in 1988 when Ron Paul was running. I was in my objectivist phase then, so I thought the libertarians were evil. Right. So, so I wanted to hear what they had to say because everything on the pamphlet sounded like the uh, the political aspect of, of objectivism. And uh, so everything Ron Paul said made sense, except I asked him a question about abortion, which kind of he, he evaded, <laughs> I noticed <laughs> at right. the time. Uh, but then I became a libertarian, you know, pretty much diehard right after that. But I never joined the party. I've spoken before a couple of meetings and things like that, but I never joined the party. Um, I, I always voted libertarian. When I voted, I always voted libertarian ever since ever since 80, um, 88. Mm -hmm. um, I voted for Reagan in 84 with my first vote. But after that, I always voted libertarian when I could. Right. Uh, when I voted, I, I didn't vote for several years. But um, so anyway, um, but then I joined when Tom Woods and Dave Smith and these guys joined, uh, you know, and my thinking was kind of what theirs was. I was thinking like, you know, every election I vote libertarian, I want them to win. They're my people. 
even though they're not pure enough and all this kind of stuff, you know, and even though I think polit- electoral politics is not really the best way to achieve liberty and is probably doomed to failure in many ways, you know, they're my people. So why right. not join it? So that was my thinking. Yeah. And I, I think that also because for, for good or ill, um, a lot of people uh, in America, w- when they hear the term libertarianism, they think libertarian party. And so part of my reason for being involved, because I'm, I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic about national politics in the, in the long term. Uh, but one of the reasons I want uh, to be involved is if the LP is going to exist, I just want it to be as libertarian as possible. And uh, some good may come of that. And then of course here at the Mises caucus, we're really focused on, uh, decentralization and getting that concept in people's minds. And I, I, I kind of see that as the only, uh, way out of, of, of what's coming. Um, I, I remember you posted something on your Facebook account a month or two before the election kind of saying, Hey, you know, things are going to be bad either way, but if, but if Biden gets in, we're, we're really in trouble. Uh, it, did I get that right? And do you still believe that? Yeah, I think I've uh, let me close this door. Hold on. I think I've uh, I've calmed down a little bit in my fear of. I mean, I was afraid for the Democrats to win because I was afraid not so much of Biden and even Harris because I think they're kind of, you know, or at least Biden is kind of Biden is kind of like a, a, a an Obama type guy. Yeah, Clinton and Obama were bad, but you know, my life was okay during them. I was just worried that the, this radical left SJW radical left socialist movement was going to take over uh i guess i've calmed down a little bit because i have some hope now that um the neoliberals which is sort of like the the lefty equivalent of the neocons the establishment is going to keep them in check a little bit and uh you know and i have some hope that they're not going to bust the filibuster and if they don't bust the filibuster they still need what nine republicans to get anything big passed and so Mm -hmm. Maybe they won't get all the crazy stuff done that they would have done. Um, so we'll see. I, I'm I'm pessimistic, but uh, you know maybe they'll have a short-lived reign, maybe four years, maybe two years. Yeah. One one of the things I was uh, concerned about before the election, and it's kind of played out, is um, you know over the past couple of years, seeing the deplatforming type stuff on on the big social media and other you know, outlets like uh, YouTube and things like that. And I was kind of afraid that once a a Biden administration would come in, that they would use, you know, the speech um, uh, uh, argument to further pressure deplatforming of people who are not sufficiently uh, statist uh, enough what and and of course, when you say something like that, some libertarians pop up and say, "Hey, but they're a private company. What? Yeah. Why? Why do you care what Facebook says?" Yeah. Um, what's your What's your take on on that and its relation to uh, the state? Yeah, I mean, I do think they're private companies, and I think the argument that they're part of the state is strained and ridiculous. Uh, but it's a stupid argument too, because okay, so what? They're private, but that doesn't mean we can't criticize them or there's not a danger there, right? They are they are pushing the statist line, and um, 
I, I, I'm not hopeless, though. I do think that alternatives can and will come about, right? Uh, Parler tried. They got defeated. But eventually something will, will come about or there will be a backlash against these companies. Um, but, yeah, and also I think that the, the sort of political correctness can't really get that much worse. Um, we're maybe seeing its apex now. I mean Trump got elected in part as a response to that, and I think the response is still growing. So I think that that um, I view that the um, I view the, uh, the the speech you know the speech uh, monitors and the the tut tutters and the uh, SJWs sort of as like what they're doing is like the thrashing of a dying beast. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting more and more virulent with what they say because they have less to say, um, less racism to fight really, and all this stuff. So I think it's playing itself out. Um, it's a little bit worrisome, especially combined with COVID, you know, it's weird how all these things are combining with each other. Uh, although even COVID, you know, as bad as it's been, you know, I've enjoyed the year myself because I have a good situation and I like being at home with my family and things like that. I know it's not good for everyone. Um, and I have, a, I have hope that it will be short lived, you know, um, a precedent, a dangerous precedent has been set when the next pandemic or whatever hits they're probably going to respond in a like fashion, but I think it'll be by the end of this year, hopefully we'll be back more or less to normal for a while. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I think you're right. I, this past year has um, kind of got me down because I, I thought um, maybe that there was still a little more of the type of America that I kind of grew up in, in the late seventies and eighties of, you know, defiance to stupid authority and things like that. And people preferring Liberty over security. And I think that it's my take that that number is a lot smaller than, than I thought it was. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah. I think we've seen that when push comes to shove, people will just go along, be meek, follow orders, or at least assume the orders are legitimate. Right. And, um, now, I guess the few that are not, that don't believe that are the ones that are storming the Capitol. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the literal losers, people that don't have anything to lose, right? Um, but those numbers are always going to be small, I think. So, yeah, I think people are docile and, they and you know, it gets worse and worse over time. People are brainwashed by government schools and propaganda. And, uh, you know, even Trump, I, I thought Trump would lose much, much by, by a bigger margin than he did. Uh, I think he actually could have won if not for the pandemic, uh, which was mm-hmm. would have been a surprise to me. But um, they just they berated the guy for four years, and that seemed that had to have an effect on the voters. You know, you just start hearing this guy's evil, 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 which they all are, but you know, not really for the reasons he's 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 accused of by the Democrats usually, right? Yep. I mean, they, they they criticize him for almost the wrong things almost every time. Um, so this barrage of propaganda has an effect, um, unfortunately, but what, yeah, the people are pretty docile and yeah. pretty subservient. Uh, what do you think about the argument that these social media companies and places like Google have had some sort of, you know, connection to like deep state stuff. They have government contracts, um, you know, there's people who used to work with the government who now work for those companies. Does that persuasive at all um, as f- for you for saying that maybe they're not completely private? 
where do we draw the, when does something, somebody who's so closely aligned to the state still not be part of the state, I guess. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess we have to realize we live in an extremely, um, not just a mixed economy, but an economy where the government is entangled in everything. So uh, almost nothing is purely private anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Even even us people are not. You know, we drive on the roads. We send our kids to public schools. Uh, we have relatives who work for the government. You know, we're dependent upon Social Security. So everything is a mixture right now. Um, the only reason to try to identify this, I guess, is for an analytical reasons to try to understand and to point out the consequences of government intervention. What would be the other purpose? It seems to me the other purpose is if you want an excuse to do something to these companies, like uh, you know, like my friend Walter Block, uh, he sued the New York Times for mm-hmm. defamation, even though he thinks defamation is wrong. And his excuse was, well, they're part of the regime. So we get to go after them, right? Now, so in, in this sphere, I guess the idea is that these companies are not purely private because of government intervention. And therefore, it's legitimate if a government intervenes and regulates them. I mean, it makes no sense. I mean, why mm-hmm. would you want the government to use its laws against private companies or quasi-private companies on the excuse that they're not fully private because the government has intervened too much. Right. You see what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, even if we identify that Google is 72% private and 28% state intermixed, the solution is to reduce the state intervention. It's exactly. not to treat them like part of the state and to say, okay, we can go steal their – break into their headquarters and steal their corporate jet. You mm-hmm. know? So I don't really see the purpose of this witch hunt mentality. These libertarians who want to like um, – they want to gleefully identify someone as part of the regime. They call them the banksters and things like this. I mean is your goal to find an, an evil guy that you're, you're justified in criticizing and, and calling for punishment on? Or is your goal human liberty, right? My, my, I mean if we could get rid of the state tomorrow… I would be happy letting everyone who, who participated in it just go free. Mm-hmm. We don't have to have WIS trials and Nuremberg trials, and just, let's just have liberty and move on. Because you can never get you can never get restitution for what they've done, right. because it was it's, it's been it's been destroyed. That's the problem with with criminality is that it destroys wealth. It's impossible for the criminal. Criminals are not usually billionaires who have tons of money to reimburse you. They're usually people that or parasites who destroy wealth and it's, it's gone forever. So the only thing we can do is try to end it going forward and everyone move on. Yeah. I think it's somewhat similar to the argument against uh, reparations for slavery is how can you fix that at this point? Untangling all of that is just literally impossible. Um, So I think the best you can do uh, both it, you know, in response to slavery and if we would get the state disbanded is to, is to just learn the lesson is like, Hey, we, we can't do that again. Right. Yeah. And you could divvy the property up in some reasonably fair way, uh, pro rata or to the people that have been using it, you know, roads to the neighbors. I mean, people have different or auction it off and then split the proceeds among the victims of the state, which would be the taxpayers and maybe even foreign victims of bombings and maybe the African-Americans and the Native Americans. Now, in the case of Native Americans and um, 
African-Americans, I think in a particular case, if one of them could prove a direct claim right. to a particular piece of property that was literally stolen, and you can, you can have good evidence of this, um, I do think that theoretically under libertarian law, they should be able to reclaim it. Um, the problem is that for older claims, the older the claim gets, the harder it is to prove these things because evidence gets stale, witnesses are dead, records in those days weren't as good as they are now, um, you know, things like that. But if you could prove it, I think you should be able to reclaim it. Lots of libertarians have a problem with that, but I just think in a private, in a free society, that would be the job of, um, of title insurance companies. So when you buy right. property, you want to make sure that the person you're you're buying it from has good title to it, meaning you can't be dispossessed by another claimant who's lurking out there. So you go to a title insurance company, they get a lawyer to do a search and they give an opinion. And if they think that the, the, the seller owns it, then um, they'll write you a title insurance policy. And if someone dispossesses you later, then they compensate you. So it would be a minor problem, I think. And if it's, if it's a wristwatch worth $30, you wouldn't bother because mm -hmm. you, you effectively just self-insure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of these ideas are kind of taking me toward uh, a place I wanted to go with you. And that's uh, um, I read an article um, that you wrote, I think about 10 years ago or so about um, Hoppe's immigration argument and right. kind of a, a simple libertarian, uh, uh, you know, position on that. And I don't want to get into that quite just uh, yet, but I do want to hear uh, of all the people that I've heard talk about Hoppe. Um, you seem to have almost. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying a lot better than, than some other people, and it's pretty clear that you hold him in really high esteem. So, what is the significance of Hoppe to the movement today and why do so many people who are supposedly libertarian uh hate him um okay so i think the significance is i think he's the, he is the primary um the most significant living libertarian thinker uh and probably austrian economist as well uh, although in austrian economics i'd put him up there with uh, you know four or five other of what I call the high Austrians and all of them are praxeologists, all of them Mazesians, you know, like Guido Holzman and uh, Jeff Herbener, Joe Salerno, some of these guys. Um, but in libertarian theory, I'd say he's primo. And that's because he's so deeply rooted in basically Mises, his praxeology and Rothbard's radical, um, radical libertarianism. Um, his theory of socialism and capitalism just really lays the groundwork for the way of looking at private property rights. Um, his later stuff, which probably got him more fame or more attention, is more on the cultural stuff, and it relates to democracy and monarchy and time preference and immigration um, and these types of issues is also important. Um, but some of it has a, conser a cultural conservative sound, mm -hmm. and he also has a couple of statements that have been either misquoted or heavily debated You know about how um, – um, he imagines a future private property or anarchist regime where people live in these enclaves or these uh, private property community, covenant communities, where like lives with like. And, um, and, um, and, and most of them, you, they, might be, they might be different in terms of their religion or 
their ethnicity or whatever, but they would tend to be libertarian in terms of private property rights and the family unit, that kind of thing. And they wouldn't tolerate communists and socialists living among them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all he meant by that was they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be welcome because they would be spreading ideas that were antithetical to the foundation of society. Yeah. And so he used the term physically removed. Now, he, I don't think he meant that you could use physical aggression against them. Uh, he just meant that people wouldn't want to live near them. And so people have taken that and they've made memes out of it. They've made these helicopter memes, these Pinochet memes. And uh, I, I mean, the hatred of Hoppe started early on. When he moved to the U.S. in 85 to be with Rothbard, he studied under Rothbard for 10 years until yeah. Rothbard's death in 95. And he was Rothbard's uh, protege and obviously his star pupil. And uh, I think there was a lot of envy and jealousy. Partly from the people that were hating Rothbard already, the, the kind of Coke, Cato types, you know, that there had been a split with Rothbard. Uh, and then Hoppe's German, and, you know, there's a lot of anti-German stuff because they're all Nazis, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, he sounds like a bad guy from the movie, so therefore he must be bad, right? Yeah, and he's also – he's a really sweet guy in person, but he's, he, he talks very logically and very succinctly and bluntly, and he came up with this theory of rights that – sort of bowled Rothbard over and it kind of pissed off the utilitarians and the moderates and the respectable guys and the natural rights guys. And, uh, and then when you added onto it, the, the hatred of the Mises Institute by some of the Cato types and his association with all that. And then the cultural conservatism and the immigration stuff came out, you know, I think it, it it's led to that. Um, I don't quite understand it. Everyone who meets him loves him and uh, the people who study him are influenced by him and really like him. Um, now, on his immigration stuff, I think the, the best way to explain it would be um, he basically sees that we have a mixed economy, right, or, or a, a non-ideal society, and that when you have a large centralized state like we have now, especially one ruled by democratic norms, um, then what then the state has to have an immigration policy. And whatever the policy is, it's going to violate someone's rights. That's his main point. So if they deny someone uh, the right to immigrate into a country at the invitation of, say, an employer or someone who wants them as a guest, then that violates the rights of the homeowner and the citizen who wants to employ that person, and he calls that forced exclusion. But on the other hand, if someone comes in, they use the, the, the government roads to get here, and then they, they take advantage of anti-discrimination law… And um, uh, affirmative action to integrate and live near people and to take advantage of welfare and they get the right to vote, then that violates people's rights by virtue of forced integration. So Hoppus and but everyone focuses on the second thing. They think he's just against immigration because of forced integration. But he points out that whatever policy the state has um, is going to violate someone's rights. And so the ideal situation is to have radical decentralization or anarchy. And then there's no such thing as immigration. There's just private property rights, and everyone does what they want to do. Um, but since we can't have that, he says, let's compare democracy to monarchy. How would it work under a monarchy? And he simply points out from economic reasoning that the because of the incentives of the way monarchy works as opposed to the way democracy works, that the incentives that the monarch would face would tend to – um, incentivize him to adopt immigration policies that would be more in line with what would happen in a private society than what democracy does. That's his only point, is that the policy that has to be adopted 
by democracy is going to tend to be the opposite of what would tend to be adopted in a private society, and a monarch would be closer to the ideal. That, that's his only point. He's not pro-monarchy, and he's not for closing off the borders. He's simply acknowledging that whatever immigration policy the state has is going to violate someone's rights. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a, a, a thing that I, I've done a little speaking on behalf of the uh, Libertarian Party here in Ohio at schools and stuff uh, uh, back uh, a few years ago. And uh, one of the things that sometimes comes up is, you know, uh, uh, you know, the state deciding like civil rights type stuff where and so I, I, I would say uh, privately owned stuff, you know, if your coffee shop doesn't want to let in Italians, then uh, that's fine. But I've always had a hard time uh, talking about like, should the library be able to get rid of bums and, right. and, and decide that, that, um, you know, certain types of content is, uh, is not permissible. How do we, because the nature of the state is that they're, to me, they, they're kind of, they're like an outlaw. So yeah. how do, uh, and they're, so I, I don't think you can steal from the state. Right. Uh, they, they certainly do. But uh, so how do we as libertarians talk about those issues? Right. The state is so entwined in that, that there's no quick libertarian solution. Well, yeah, I, I think that the traditional or the conventional approach by given by some like Walter Block, um, I think is a little bit off base because their their framework is that um, property or resources claimed or used by the state are unowned, so they can be treated as as if they're unowned, and therefore you know you can have a sit-in on a on a campus of a public university or the Capitol Hill situation, uh, or, or 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 just commandeering a public library. It's all fine because they're unowned. Um, I think that's wrong. I think that they're not unowned. Um, I think an un- I think that maybe the national forests are unowned because they're not improved. The, mm-hmm. the government just puts a big fence around them and prevents anyone from homesteading them. So they're like they're still terra nullius or unowned. Um, but most things the government uses are owned. So, for example, lots of government property. They purchased like it was privately owned, and then they tax people or they print money from the Fed, so, and they just they buy it from someone. So the government might buy a house or a piece of land and build a federal building on it. So the land was privately owned before, and it's still owned. It's just I would say, and then also if if the government has has basically appropriated something, you know, and then they built it using tax dollars. So there's lots of property the government legally owns. So from a libertarian point of view, the, what I would say is that property is owned, but the legitimate owner is the is the citizens who have a claim on the state for restitution, right? So the public roads, the federal buildings, libraries, things like that, they're all owned. They're legally owned by the government, but that's an illegitimate claim because the government is criminal, and the citizens, the taxpayers, the na- you know the the the, land, the the people that are, were taxed to support it. The people that were um, forced to forced to uh, uh, give up their property in expropriation to provide it, etc. All those people have a claim on it, so they're the natural owners. Now, so for example, you could argue that uh, you know you had people, the left being outraged 
when you make when people made a comparison to the lootings that happened this summer for the for the Black Lives Matter riots and the Capitol Hill stormings, they're saying, well, you can't compare a riot protesting racial injustice to a bunch of uh, fascist thugs invading sacred ground at the Capitol. And my argument was the opposite. It was like, well, the BLM riots burned down private property that of innocent owners, you know, like Target stores and things like that. Whereas the, the people that went into the Capitol at least have some claim to it because they're citizens and they're the real owners of it. So they're just using their own property. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. so, um, I think the best way, though, to look at it is uh, so let's say we all have a claim to the roads and to these libraries. Does that mean that you should break in and start defacing it and vandalizing it? I would say no, unless it's part of some kind of insurrection you know part of a military maneuver but in general i would say that no you, you i think you have the right to use it which is why i think we have the right to use the public roads and which is the article i wrote on immigration was simply pointing out that you know you, you could you could achieve a, a kind of quasi hoppy and limited immigration policy by simply recognizing that government property like the public roads is owned by the taxpayers so they have a right to use it but outsiders or foreigners don't have a, a property right claim to that road. And so if the government, as the caretaker of the road on behalf of the owners, the American citizens, doesn't allow them to use the public roads, then it doesn't violate their rights. Um, now, if the, if the taxpayer owners want them to be able to use those roads, that violates the rights of the taxpayers, but their rights are already being violated. So it was sort of that kind of argument. Um, one of the, the problems I, I've kind of had uh, with that argument is if you grant that the state has, you know, the functional right, I don't even know if that's the, the right term, to decide uh, things like, uh, let, let's say, you know, they own all this stuff de facto, like the, the federal highway system and stuff like that. On what basis do we then not um, allow them to say to determine citizenship, right? If they're in charge of everything, right? Like, uh, because you know, people like Hoppe's argument that the people are the are the rightful natural owners, and the state is some sort of a, a, a caretaker or, or something. But realistically, the state does what it wants, and there's really nothing. Certainly, not much we can uh, we can we can do about it. Right. So, uh, so where again? I I, I think that. My my uh, unsophisticated, I guess, question is: um, if you grant the state the right to operate uh, in some, you know, uh, leeway on some things, how how why then would they not be yeah. able to determine whom to invite from wherever else? That well, they would certainly abuse it, um, and I'm not saying they should have that discretion. I'm simply saying that if they did. Um, if 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 an if an if a foreigner was not permitted the right to use the public property, it doesn't violate their rights. So mm -hmm. I was just using that as a as a counter to the argument that it's it's a big human rights violation if we don't have open borders. It's simply a counter to that argument. Um, I think as a practical matter, what Hoppe himself has suggested is that we should have anyone who is invited here should be allowed to come. So if someone wants an employee from, or a foreigner to come and work for their factory, they should be allowed to come. They have an invitation. 
Um, so if you allowed anyone with an invitation to come, number one, it would radically increase the amount of immigration, and it would get rid of the forced exclusion problem, right? Because it wouldn't violate the rights of people who want to invite someone who are for, prohibited by, um, and it would improve the quality. And if the government simply got rid of its anti-discrimination laws mm -hmm. and its affirmative action laws and the welfare policy and democracy where these new these new immigrants have the right to vote, um, it would solve all the problems, even if they could use the public roads, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it would it would radically reduce all the strife that is caused by immigration right now, what was called mass immigration by some people, right? Uh, in, yep. a, in a in a massive democratic state. I mean, uh, personally, look, I'm a I'm an anarchist libertarian, and I hate the federal government. I cannot favor the INS stopping mm -hmm. people at the border. Right. But th these are fascist thugs. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not going to deny that having open borders in this society that the government has erected wouldn't be without without harm. I mean, it would cause forced the forced integration problems that Hoppe mentions. So the solution, I think, would be to have a more rational policy by scaling back the state's scope and its form. Yeah. One last question on, on this. Um, what if, um, as part of this uh, uh you know, they're the Biden administration is looking at, you know, right wing terrorism and stuff like that. What if they decide that uh, anybody who is uh, a libertarian uh, can no longer use the federal highways? What how how would we argue against that? It's it's uh, it, it's a danger. I mean, we have our, we would have our natural law arguments, but um, uh, constitutionally, you there'd probably be some constitutional arguments. Uh, 14th Amendment. Privileges and immunities, I think, includes the right to travel and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say it's a, it's a violation of um, equal protection under the law, things like that. Um, maybe the First Amendment, the right to um, freedom of speech and freedom mm -hmm. of thought. But it, yeah, the, that's the problem with the governments. They have a lot yep. of power, and um, it, it is dangerous. I mean, I think there's some talk already about having these loyalty-type tests for joining the military or even being employed by the federal government. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, those are actually might be good. You know? mm. <laughs> Have a clearer distinction between the good guys and the bad guys, you know, get them on record that they're supporting which yeah. side. Yeah. So then, you know, that everyone in the military and everyone working with the federal government are all basically toadies. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't stop there. It was the, the next, it might be, it might be welfare. It might be social security payments. It might be tax exemptions for your 401k. It might be having the right to send your kids to, to university, you know, or to get a driver's license. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it, it could get worse and worse. Yep. Um, let, you, you mentioned, um, and your sort of commentary on this is, is helped me understand it better. Um, uh, that I think that you and others have said that, you know, Hoppe's argumentation ethics is the, his big contribution and what makes him so uh, revered. I'm particular, you know, I came up, um, I was converted to libertarianism by Walter Williams when he would host the Rush Limbaugh show back in the early and mm -hmm. uh, mid nineties. And mm -hmm. I found out about laissez faire books and got for a new Liberty. And I was like, Oh yeah, this kind of uh, the argument was familiar to, it's kind of a Lockean natural rights argument. And so I've taken that almost as a, you know, libertarian article of faith uh, since then. And then here comes Hoppe. Is he 
in relation to like the natural rights view of things, natural law, is he totally saying that's invalid? What, what is he saying about that? And, and what actually is argumentation ethics? I think Hoppe um, comes from a more Kantian background. Um, and he's also influenced by Hume, David Hume a lot. Mm -hmm. And Hume identified one problem with the natural law approach um which is the is ought gap which is that there's a there's a logical uh, there's a logical um problem in going from is statements to ought statements from one class of statements to another um you know just like mises uh distinguishes between um causation and teleology right so he's he's a dualist in his analysis of human action so you have the causal world and you have the teleological world, the world that we analyze in terms of human purposes and preferences and actions. And then the causal world, which operates according to the laws of cause and effect, physics, basically. Um, and likewise, um, in the film of, of descriptive statements, you have descriptions and prescriptions. You have things that say how things are and then, th and then statements about how things ought to be or should be. And... Hume pointed out that you can't just go from an is to an ought. You can't just say, well, human beings have this nature, and therefore they ought to do this because you snuck an, you snuck an ought in. And so that's, that's been a problem that's been plaguing and bedeviling the natural law approach for a long time. Um, Hoppe points out that you can overcome that problem and have a natural – he calls it natural law rightly conceived. Mm -hmm. So his view is a type of natural law thinking, but – Instead of focusing on human nature per se, like our nature as a rational being living in the world, he focuses on our nature as arguing creatures, that is, engaging in, in dialogue or discourse to determine the answers to questions, right? So he roots our norms in the ethics presupposed by argumentation itself as a subclass of action, whereas natural law thinking would be rooted more in action itself or human nature itself. So he points out that like there's nothing connotative or nothing ethically implied by acting per se or just by being or having a nature. Um, but there is something ethically implied by engaging in a, in a discussion about what we should do. Because once you sit down and have a discussion with someone, the discussion is always peaceful. Mm-hmm. And because the discussion is peaceful, that means that you're both agreeing to respect each other's bodily integrity and rights and to persuade each other by the force of your arguments and not by a coercive threat to hit the other guy or hurt the other guy to force him to agree with you. So once you, once you set those ground rules for the argument, then those ground rules are sort of implicit. They're sort of a background presupposition for anything you might discuss. Whether it be physics or chemistry or mathematics or, or art or ethics or norms. So anything you want to propose in an argument, like I propose that here's how we should live together. I propose these laws should be put in force. I propose these property rights should be respected. Whatever you propose has to be compatible with those lower level norms that you're already assuming to be valid just to take part in argumentation itself. That's what argumentation ethics is, and he he got it by sort of combining um, argumentation ethics of Jürgen Habermas, who's a, a very old 
by now, but well-known leftist philosopher in Europe, who was his dissertation advisor, um, who came up with discourse ethics to prove some kind of welfare rights, right? Mm-hmm. So Hoppe took the core idea, but combined it with, with Mises's praxeology, his understanding of economics, and Rothbard's radical libertarian understanding of the state and violence and aggression, and he, he reworked it to come up with his own version of it, which is like putting the libertarian ethics on a new foundation. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get your take on something real quick before we talk about some IP stuff. Um, uh, you were just on another podcast, and I'll link to that on the show notes page, uh, talking about the GameStop stuff. Um, I am not... Uh, you know, that the wall street type of stuff, I, I'm, I would say, a, a intermediate in my understanding of things. Um, and I always have a hard time. Like when I talk to my wife, I, I know what I believe, but I just have a hard time explaining it, uh, so that a normal person can, uh, get their minds around it. Um, give us a take on what exactly is going on and maybe start with assuming that we know nothing about what the stock market is and we know nothing about what short selling is. Oh, with the GameStop situation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm an intermediate too, but I think I know enough to explain it to someone coming from the cold. Uh, okay, so we have we have a society where people trade with each other and we use money to do that because now we have money, right? So we have an mm-hmm. indirect medium of exchange, so there's prices. Um, and then we have something called a stock market. And a stock market is... Uh, where you have corporations or companies have emerged as ways of doing business, which is large collections of people and assets, and they arrange it so that the assets of the business are owned by shareholders who own shares or stocks in the company. So everyone owns a certain number of Exxon shares or GameStop shares or whatever, and these shares are traded on a public exchange with like the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or others around the world. And they, they trade because people – companies want to issue these shares and sell them to get money, to get equity so they can run their business and get started. So that's the kind of background for what a stock market is. Um, on the stock market, people try to predict what the prices are going to do. They're going to go up. They're going to go down, and they, they try to buy stocks or sell stocks to try to make a profit, right? So that's the background for the stock market. Now – if you think a stock is going to go up in value, you might buy the stock and hold it. So if I think Apple is going to go up in value, I might buy it at $100, and if it goes up to $150 in a couple of years, I can sell it. I made a profit. If I think Apple is going to go down or better GameStop – now, GameStop was a video game company, I believe, or a computer game company, um, and some people think that their business model is declining, sort of like Blockbuster Video. Mm-hmm. Um, died away because they didn't adjust to changes in content delivery like Netflix did. Remember, Netflix was a video. They used to sell CD or rent CDs in the mail, yep. DVDs in the mail, and they, 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 they adjusted to a streaming model, and they survived. Blockbuster didn't. Mm-hmm. So some people think that GameStop is going to go down like Blockbuster did. There's another guy that thinks they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're going to adapt, and so he was investing in them. Um, I forgot his name. Um, so if you think a stock is going to fall, 
you can make pro if you own the stock you can just sell it now at the high before it falls and then maybe you could buy it back later when it falls right so that's one way but if you don't own any steers another way to do it is a short sale which is you borrow a share from someone who owns one like say say i borrow 10 shares of game stock stop stock from you and i promise to repay you those shares or similar shares in a in a month for a small fee right so you loan me the shares and i'm going to give you those 10 shares back in a month so i take those shares and i sell them now at the high price and when they fall in price in a month, I buy them back from someone else and I give them back to the guy I borrowed them from. So I made a profit because I, I sold them for $10 and I bought them back for $2, something like that. Um, that's what a short sale is. Mm -hmm. So you had a bunch of uh, hedge funds in New uh, Wall Street, hedge funds, who assumed that GameStop was falling. So they were all doing short sales for GameStop. Um, and a bunch of these small guys that are what they call wall street bet guys that were using this this uh, robin hood trading app to trade um they noticed that there was a lot of short selling going on for gamestop now i think the short selling probably was rational because they're maybe the shares would have fallen and will fall eventually because their business model is being outmoded um but they they were over they had too many people they had so many that that was noticed by these by these little traders and they reason to themselves it, there's so many short sales going on for robin hood i mean sorry for gamestop stock that we can do what's called a short squeeze which means they started buying shares in gamestop and when you buy shares you bid the price up so the instead of the price falling and allowing these short traders to make a profit the price started going up and it started going up and up even more as more and more of these guys kept buying it. And plus, this other guy was buying shares that I mentioned. I forgot Cohen or something like that. This guy that thought um, thinks it's going to go up because they're, they're going to get their business model straight. So mm -hmm. you had this upward price pressure, and all of a sudden, you know, the loan for the short sellers came due. They owed their shares back to the people they had loaned borrowed them from. So they had to go buy them from the market at a higher price than they than they than they sold them for which means they were taking a loss. And when they bought them, they bid the price up even further. So it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of the logic of a short squeeze. So they were suffering billions and billions of dollars of losses. So it was kind of a clever play by these alert individual traders, these Reddit guys, these guys that were collaborating on Reddit to, to all do this. They said, everyone buy, everyone buy, and hold for a while until these short, these short traders are, are screwed and we get their money, basically, right? Yeah. So in the middle of all this, the volume got to be so high, and there were so many billions of dollars being lost that in the middle of all this, um, Robinhood, which is the trading platform being used by a lot of these little traders, announced they were they were halting trading. They would let you sell, but they wouldn't let you buy any more GameStop shares. <laughs> and so everyone started accusing them of being in the pocket of the hedge funds or the government trying to protect the big guys. Uh, so I was on a podcast last night discussing that with some people uh, who know something about the the finance industry. And so anyway, um, um, you know, a lot of the conspiracy minded people think that, you know, that uh, Ro uh, Robin Hood screwed the little guys to protect the big guys, to keep the big guys from losing even more money than they would have. 
Um, now, my view as a libertarian was even if they did that, they have the right to do that unless mm-hmm. there's a contractual provision provi- saying they couldn't do that, which I doubt because they, they have clever contracts. Um, uh, now, it would hurt their reputation if they did that, but they have a right to. Now, I doubt that's what they did, and according to the discussion I had last night, it was some kind of regulatory reason. In other words, the volume was so high, and Robinhood had to have enough cash on hand to cover it, and they didn't have enough cash on hand to cover all these huge volumes that they had to go borrow uh, or get a billion dollars investment to be able to handle this, and they, they resumed it a couple days later. So um, they might have been unprepared for this huge, unexpected volume. But I don't know if anything nefarious was done. Um, and it could also be said that apparently their CFO or whatever went on the news that day. And the way he explained why they were halting trading was pretty ham-fisted and confused people and gave rise to a lot of these conspiracy theories. He didn't explain like, look, we, we have no choice because of the, the way this arcane regulatory system works. We, we don't have enough money to, to support all this for a day or two. Yep. So that, that's roughly what I think happened. If um, if it could be proven that Robinhood did uh, shut down the trading uh, at the behest of some hedge funds guys or the government under the current legal structure around Wall Street, couldn't that be some sort of unethical practice in, its, in I, and of itself? I, I believe so. According to so we had a guy on last night named Silent Cal, who's a Twitter guy, and he, he knows a lot about the ins and outs of the stock market and things like that. Um, apparently, um, um, Robin Hood is subject to a lot of the broker dealer regulations and they have, they have duties of fiduciary duties to their customers. So I think they couldn't have done that. So it would be something akin to a contract breach or there could, there could be a cause of action, but there apparently have been a couple of class actions brought already. And, um, this guy, Cal thinks that they'll be dismissed because they're totally groundless because Robin Hood had just simply no choice. They had to abide by the regulations and, um, what he claims is that that they had two percent of the of the on hand they had two percent on hand of the cash needed to support the trades, but the NSCC or some some regulatory agency that that regulates them raised the requirement to a hundred percent unexpectedly. So mm-hmm. they just didn't have the money, so they had to abide by it. Something I'm probably misstating it a little bit because I don't understand the ins and outs a lot, but. Um, uh, so I think theoretically there could be some kind of claim, okay. uh, uh, a contract claim or some kind of uh, regulatory claim against Robin Hood if they had done that. But from what I can tell, they probably didn't. They just they just handled it badly and they didn't plan. I have a feeling that going forward they're going to have be, be prepared for for bigger things like this. Uh, otherwise, they're going to lose to out to competitors. Who I mm-hmm. think there's some there's some competitors that are springing up now. Yeah. Uh, in the, we have maybe 10 or 15 minutes left. Um, uh, what you're most famous for in the libertarian world is of course, uh, your views on intellectual property or IP. Um, I think IP, uh, issues are one of those, you know, there's four or five issues that often are like the last domino to fall for people who are on the way to becoming uh, a full libertarian or ANCAP. And I think part of the reason why is, you know, people like Rand and, and, and others, uh, their defense of, uh, IP laws is rooted in, uh, property rights. And so I've had a a few discussions with people that when I say with other libertarians, when I say, 
um, you know, there's a debate about why insulin costs whatever. And I'm like, well, if you just did away with the patents and the IP, you know, then that would solve that. Um, they, they look at me and like, how can you be a libertarian, uh, and believe that. And I, I think I always point them uh, to your book against intellectual property. What gets you interested? I, I know your, your background is that, but when did you say, Hey, I need to write something about this. And how was that received? Um, so I was, I think I was like reading Rand, like in high school and college and law school. And, you know, I read her stuff on patents and, I just assumed she was right. It didn't quite make sense to me because she said, well, it makes sense for this right to only last for, for 50 years or mm -hmm. whatever it was. And I was thinking like, well, why would it only last 50 years instead of forever or zero, right? And, and if it's going to last some intermediate time, why not 40? Why not 70? So she kind of hand-waved it and just it – was, it was curious. And I always thought there's something weird about this argument because it doesn't quite fit with – the way she argues for other things, which is more natural rights type, mm -hmm. like, more principled. This one was more ad hoc and empirical, right? And um, I, it always was simmering in my mind during law school. And and I started practicing law in 92, but I did oil and gas law at first. And then I switched around 93 to IP law. And so I, I was taking the patent bar, learning patent law, and I, I've been doing that ever since. But around the same time, I just started studying everything I could on IP theory from a libertarian and economic point of view, just trying to figure it out because I was figuring out everything else I could on, on libertarian theory, right? Rights and law and economics and contract theory and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so just it was I think it was really a coincidence. It's just uh, I guess I was I had extra motivation to figure it out because I, w I knew I was going to practice it in my field of law. And I also started understanding the law itself better. And that, that probably enabled me to understand the arguments, the ethical arguments or the, you know, the political arguments about it. Um, so I can't right, right around the same time that I, I passed the patent bar in 1994, I came to the conclusion that the patent and copyright system were totally illegitimate. And I started writing about it in a tentative way, like I would speak at federal society meetings, but I would be really like, maybe we should consider the arguments against it. Like, you know, I didn't want to say I was an abolitionist because I was afraid it would hurt my career. Mm -hmm. um, I turned out to be wrong. It has never hurt my career because no one cares. <laughs> uh, or, or people hear me and they'll say, hey, you sound like you know what you're talking about. Would you do my patent for me? So let right. Me it's helped me get clients for some strange reason, but, um, um, but that was 90, say five, I think my first article was in 95 that I published. And then I started, I started attending Austrian scholars conferences right after Rothbard died in 95 and uh, being close to Hoppe. And so every Austrian scholars conference, which was in the spring and meet in Auburn, I would go and present a paper on contract theory or on causation or legislation or rights theory, you know, something. And around in 1998 or nine, I, I gave one on intellectual property and Hoppe liked it. And I wrote it up into a long article and he published it in the JLS. And uh, I think it was kind of ignored at first, but that was right when the internet was picking up speed. So mm -hmm. then the IPSU started getting more and more on people's mind because it started affecting their lives more with, with piracy and with, the six strikes, you know, with the, with the YouTube takedown system and all this kind of stuff. 
Uh, I remember Jeff Tucker, who was at Mises, he and I were like light friends at the time. And he said he read my IP article in 2000 or whenever it was published. And he thought I was crazy. Mm -hmm. But he read it again and he read it again. And he said, holy shit, this is right. So then he became like my partner in crime on this issue and promoting it and building on it and extending it and spreading it. So um, um, I think at the same time, I'd say the the big pioneers in this really were the different levels. So Benjamin Tucker was like a late 1800s anarchist. He was close on this. He was against it because he was against monopolies. So unlike, unlike uh, uh, Spooner, who was his contemporary, Spooner was horrible on IP, horrible, Mm -hmm. horrible, horrible, infected by the Lockean labor theory of value and all this, all this stuff. Um, But, Tucker was good, but he was kind of a lefty about it. Like he was against monopolies in land and all this. So he was against these other monopolies. So he was good on it, but almost for not exactly the right reasons. Um, and then you had Samuel Konkin, this agorist guy in the 80s who started dabbling in it. And he basically got it straight. And then Wendy McElroy picked up the baton from him. And she really did the first modern libertarian broadside against IP, I think. It was really Wendy McElroy the main one. Uh, it wasn't comprehensive, of course. It didn't cover patents too much, but it was the first modern treatment really calling for copyright abolition from libertarian principles. Um, and then and then Tom Palmer from Cato wrote two good articles in the late 80s about it, and then Roderick Long and then me. So that's kind of like uh, – that's, that's kind of the path. Okay. Um, did Rothbard ever write about things like that? Rothbard wrote about – yeah, he wrote about it in The Ethics of Liberty. He said – and in Man, Economy, and State, he wrote about patents. He, he criticized patents not for all the reasons you could give, but his reasons were good. Like he said patents are monopolies. Patents distort – they distort innovation because you know it gives you a reward for doing this kind of research, but it doesn't give you a reward – for more general abstract research, so it just it, it skews or distorts the field of research. So he had some good criticism of patents. For copyright, he got a little bit confused and he lost sight of his. See, he had a good criticism of defamation law, which is like IP law uh, in the ethics of liberty. He said that you can't own your reputation because you that you would be owning other people's brains because this your reputation is just what they think about you, and you can't own other people's opinions. Or, Right now, the same idea could apply to copyright and patent. But for copyright, what he said was, if you if you have an idea, like for uh, for an invention, which is usually covered by patents, or for I guess for a book, and if you sell it to someone, and you you have a contract on there saying you can't copy this, then if they copy it, they're violating your right, your contract right. And then he said, and if a third party gets it. The thing he buys from the from the from the initial buyer, they don't have the right to copy, so you can't get more rights than they had, so you don't have the right to copy. Mm-hmm. Now I think that was his that was a mistake he made. Um, so he called it contractual or common law copyright, but it was just kind of confused. So he wasn't totally against it. I do believe, and I met him one time before he died. I think if 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 he had lived a little bit longer. 
um, I think I, I think he easily would have seen, oh, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, copyright's mm-hmm. totally wrong too. I think he would have seen that. Um, he just didn't understand that you cannot construct copyright and patent from contract because it's hard to explain why in a short explanation, but the basic reason is that um, property rights are what's called in rem rights or rights good against the world. Mm-hmm. In other words, you don't need everyone's uh, contractual agreement ahead of time to have a, co- a property right. Like if you own a house, no one has the right to use it without your permission, even if they didn't have a contract with you ahead of time. Mm-hmm. You're just the owner of the house. It's good against the world. It's an in rem right or, or, real, or we call it a real right. Or real doesn't mean ima- not imaginary. It means in a real thing, in a, a res, a, mm-hmm. a thing, a piece of tangible property. Um usually fixed or immovable real estate um, um, as opposed to what's called impersonum rights, which are contractual rights. Now you and I can have a contract or an agreement between us. And that's sometimes called in the law, the law between the parties, which is fine, but the law between the parties only binds the, the, the parties to the contract. Okay. So an impersonum or a contractual right never binds third parties. Um, which is why you have the concept of privity of contract. You can only sue someone if you if you have a contract with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if I sell you a watch and I tell you it's going to keep good time, you can sue me if it doesn't keep good time because there's like an implied warranty contract or something like that between us. But if if my if my buyer sells it to someone else at a flea market, they can't sue me because they don't have a contract with me. I didn't make a guarantee to them. That kind of thing. Yeah. Right. What is um uh, y- your book is is fairly short and I recommend it to everybody. I think you can download it from the Mises.org uh, uh, page. Um, but uh, what's your elevator speech argument uh, uh, or summary of against intellectual property? Um, the basic idea is that the reason we have property rights is because we live in a material world where we human beings are actors and we employ scarce resources, which is basically physical objects um, as part of action. Mises calls them means. We employ scarce means. And because of the nature of those scarce means, they can only be used by one person at a time. So in other words, there can be conflict over those things. And so we have property rights to allocate who is the owner of these resources so everyone can see who the owner is and know who the owner is so that they can respect each other's rights and they can cooperate and trade with each other and use their resources without being interfered with, right? And then we have the division of labor. We have cooperation. We have society. We have progress. We have peace, productivity, prosperity, all that. So the purpose of property rights is a response to the problem of conflict over the use of scarce resources, Information is another thing or knowledge, right, that guides human action. You you use knowledge about the way the world works. You use knowledge of cause and effect or causal laws. You use knowledge about what the future might be to guide your actions and to decide which actions to perform, to decide which means to employ to achieve a given effect. But the knowledge that we have is like a recipe. It can be used by any number of people at the same time. It's not a scarce resource. Um, so property rights don't apply to that because you can't have a conflict over it. In other words, only one person can use my bowl and my spoon at a time to make a dish, but any number of people can use the same recipe to make apple pie. 
right? Mm-hmm. You could have a million people making apple pie at the same time in their own houses, but they can only only one person can use my oven at the same time. So my oven is owned, but my recipe is not. And if you allow, if you try to protect information with property rights, which is what patent and copyright do, it's literally impossible to do that because all law is backed by force. Force is a physical thing that only can only be applied to physical things. So in effect, all rights are always property rights, and all property rights are always rights to control and use a scarce resource. That's what they are. Mm-hmm. So when you have a copyright or a patent law, what it really does is it doesn't really give ownership of information. But in the name of doing that, it really just transfers ownership of things that are already owned. So for example, if you give someone a copyright, what it does is it gives them a property right in my factory or in my in my printing press. So before I owned my paper and my ink and my printing press and my computer and my typewriter and my keyboard. But now they can tell me I can't use those things for certain things. I cannot use my ink and my paper to print a book that says Atlas Shrugged, right? Mm-hmm. I can't do that. So now they have a property right in my property. So copyright effectively transfers property rights from owners to non-owners. And the same thing with patents. If someone has a patent on a new mousetrap design, then I cannot use my wood and my steel and my factory to make mousetraps arranged in a certain way. Even though I own the wood, even though I own the factory, even though I own the steel that I'm using to make these mousetraps, now this patent owner has a legal right to use force against me to, that prohibits me from using my factory in a certain way or even my body. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so basically patent and copyright invade and redistribute and take property rights, and therefore they restrict speech. They cause censorship, and they impede innovation, and they result in the impoverishment of everyone, and they restrict human liberty and human freedom. And it's totally antithetical to private property rights and the free market. Um, The entire purpose of patent and copyright law is to allow the owner of the copyright and the patent to be free from competition so that you can charge a monopoly price. That is the stated purpose of these laws. So I come up with a novel. You can't make a copy of it, so I can sell it at an inflated price. Or I come up with a new pharmaceutical or a new design for a mousetrap. I can sell it. You can't sell a similar one, so I can sell it at an inflated monopoly price and make more money than I otherwise would. So the entire purpose is anti-competitive. It's literally to stop competition and to allow you to charge monopoly price. So you can see that it's completely antithetical to free markets and private property and competition. It's uh, uh, usually when you kind of get to this part uh, point in in an argument uh, with people about IP, the the question is, well, how do we protect writers and and musicians and all this? But I want to go in a different direction because it's almost like the what is seen, what is not seen from uh, Hazlitt and uh, Bastiat. How much different would the world be if we had a libertarian understanding of IP that kind of ag- agrees with your uh, view? Well, so let's t- I mean, there's there's different types of IP. There's trademark and trade secret and there's boat hole designs and there's defamation law. But the main two are patent and copyright. So let's just talk about those. Sure. So in the field of patents, I think that you would basically have way more innovation. So we would be richer. We'd be way more technologically advanced. You'd have way more competition. 
you wouldn't just have three smartphone makers, you'd have a dozen, right? Something like that. Um, Facebook wouldn't have a monopoly as easily as they do now because people could just knock off. They could make Facebook too if they wanted by copying their code. But wait, it, if we don't if we don't give them the right to hold on to that and charge those monopoly prices, what incentive do they have then to to that the argument goes, what incentive do they have to keep innovating? Well, cycle, there there are there's lots of analysis and studies of this. First of all, as a as a matter of empirical fact, we know that throughout human history there's been innovation even mm-hmm. though there weren't working patent systems always. So Innovation happens always. Yep. The question is, does do you get more of it with a patent system? Um, there's no reason to think that the patent system increases the amount of innovation or that it causes innovation to come about that wouldn't have come about anyway. Mm-hmm. Because usually when there's a new invention, there's two or three or four people working on it at the same time. Inventions come when their time has come, like yep. when the groundwork has been laid and it's ready. You couldn't have had the light bulb until certain preconditions have been laid. You couldn't have had the semiconductor until certain inventions have come about. Uh, the bottom line is people would do it for, for personal reasons, for scientific discovery, for uh, for charitable re- uh, nonprofit reasons, or for profit reasons. They do it to solve a problem, to make a better product so they can have an advantage in the market. Um, and you got to remember, every invention, every invention, literally, is incremental. There's no such thing as an invention ex nihilo from nothing. Um, everything is built on top of previous inventions. Um, I heard actually a good Richard Wolff, who's a leftist, a mm-hmm. Marxist, actually economist, who's bad on a lot, but he's kind of pro free trade and he's good on IP. And he 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 gave this analogy, which I had never heard of before. He said the idea of giving a monopoly to an inventor who really is the end of it of an incremental chain of innovations, right? It's like if you have a bunch of people building, a, um, um, uh, putting up a wall around a house to stop a flood from coming, like they're putting sandbags down, right? Until the last guy puts the last sandbag down, the wall, the water can still get through. Mm-hmm. So when the last guy puts the last sandbag in, it would be like giving him the credit for building the whole wall, yeah, right. And I think that's a good analogy. Um, so the incentive would be. Look, you have to innovate to distinguish yourself from your competitors. In fact, you could say that the patent system impedes innovation because once you have a patent on your new smartphone idea or whatever, and you can, you're protected from competition yeah. for 17 years, why would you innovate for 17 years? Because you don't need to. You have right. a monopoly on this product. That's so, Right. Well, the, the argument I, I always have is, that, you know, I'm a big music fan and I tell people, people are like, oh, you'd bankrupt musicians if you did this. And I'm like, well, if we didn't have IP protection, maybe, uh, you know, a band like The Who that I really like a lot, you know, they had a few good years. And then <laughs> after that, they could just kind of recycle the same stuff and uh, can coast on the uh, the fact that they can control those IP properties of theirs so they're mega wealthy without much incentive other than like you know personal artistic expression or whatever to uh uh to innovate and to come up with new stuff and to not be the same and even if even if the who could be ripped off and they couldn't make tons of money off of their recordings they could tour and make millions anyway they've done so um i think that we had a weird period in 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 society where I don't know, maybe from 1970 to 1990, when you could make millions of dollars from selling records and CDs, right? Yep. 
before that, the industry wasn't that big. And after that, you had digital and piracy. So you had this aberrational period where you could make so much money from selling physical media. Yep. And that's gone now. So even if you have copyright like we do now, you know, piracy is here to stay. I think Cory Doctorow uh, pointed out that um, the Internet is the world's biggest copying machine. And yep. it will never get harder in the future than it is now to copy. It's only going to get easier. So, you know. You even if you have copyright, it's not going to stop piracy and copying. So you got to come up with a business model that that works around that. Most musicians don't make a lot of money anyway, even with copyright. Most artists don't make a lot of money, and they don't always do it for the money, or they get patrons, you know, or they do it as a second job. Um, um, and a lot of people, a lot of uh, even famous musicians, um, just from my knowledge, I think that. Uh, a lot of them will say that the the real money does come from touring unless you yeah. you know in that in that 20 year span you were talking about you can make a lot of money but now i think there are bands that uh, maybe don't make a whole lot of money from records and also the market is just so much more fragmented you know um there's not we don't have this monoculture but there are people who can make a good living sometimes very very good just by touring and like specialized merchandise to their to their fans and things like that so well and also think about this i mean think about all the artists out there that are always in the back of their mind thinking i'd like to do this i'd like to experiment this way but i can't because i'm gonna get sued yep you know i mean i think that the the, the rap and all that uh i think in the beginnings relied a lot on sampling and all that stuff uh, maybe it wasn't enforced as much back then but you know if that if copyright was enforced to the letter, it would have it would have stifled even that art form, right? And you know you have all kinds of people walking into copyright lawsuits all the time, which are ridiculous, waste money. And it, I think the worst thing in terms of the copyright field in art and creative creative products is that it distorts mm -hmm. what people do. You know, documentaries don't have pictures of buildings in them because there's a statue out front which has a copyright, uh, or or, or you have to blank out people's faces on the street because of some kind of publicity, right? I mean, uh, or some documentaries are held up for years or they're banned or they're, they're not allowed to be done because of that. Um, you know, movies have more sequels because they just rest on their laurels. Sequels are a huge thing now because of copyright. Yeah. Uh, the, the entire field of, uh, and in, in, by the way, in the field of fashion, there's no fashion copyrights or trademarks exactly. Well, there's trademarks. But there's no copyright, mm -hmm. so fashion is a thriving industry with where there's knockoffs, and so every year the 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 high fashion designs change, and all the ladies with money want the latest things, and so you know that industry industry works that way. But you know Chanel and uh, Louis Vuitton and all these high end makers, they've tried like you know you'll notice it's kind of weird that you'll have a a Louis Vuitton purse or a Chanel purse with with the the brand name. Is part of the design, yeah. Which which is weird, but the reason they do that is because then they can protect that purse from being knocked off by using trademark law. Yeah. So even just the absence of copyright law and the availability of trademark law has distorted fashion as well. Yeah. And um, one one like one last thing about this is uh, a lot of times you hear people on the left when they talk about uh, you know the need for universal health care or something like that, they're like, well. Under capitalism, uh, you know, people have to pay four hundred dollars a month for insulin or something like that. And 
um, my answer to that. And, you know, I, I have a, a big vested interest in that issue. My wife is a type one diabetic. My nephew has uh, potentially deadly food allergies. And so with both of them, they need, you know, they need the medication and also the delivery device. Um, uh, like uh, for my nephew's EpiPen, it's like, it, it's a great design, but only this one company can make it. And so that's the reason mm-hmm. it costs a lot of money is because all those competitors can't innovate, make, you know, some, someone can make a cheaper, uh, easier to use product. Another person could, could make something that's, that's, uh, uh, better in some other way, but all of that, um, can't happen now. And therefore there's a lot of, I had a coworker once who had a deadly food allergy who, because of the cost that she didn't have insurance or something, uh, she would, she went around without, uh, an EpiPen. And if market forces were allowed to happen, she could buy one of those for five bucks or something, you know? Well, a lot of these, um, uh, pharmaceuticals and related devices and things, um, they're, they're made and say by American manufacturers and they're sold here at a monopoly at a monopoly price because they're protected from competition by the patent. And then they go and sell them in other countries for one tenth the price mm-hmm. because those countries have socialized medicine and they have price controls, but the companies still sell the products there because it's still at a profit. Right. Yep. I mean, if you guess, if you sell a drug at $10 instead of a hundred, it only takes you two bucks to make it. You still make a profit. Right. So, they're selling it cheaper in other countries when they have to. And then like in Canada, for example, so then you'll have some, uh, some Americans say, well, we can do arbitrage, right? We can, let's go to Canada and buy the drugs up in Canada and resell them in the U S for a slight markup, but it'll be way less than what they're being charged here. And then you have libertarians who are allegedly free market and free trade advocates who say you can't allow this? What's called drug reimportation? There was a big, a big, uh, a big brouhaha with the Cato types about 15 years ago. I've got some blog posts about it. Um, I forgot the names of the guys. You had one or two Cato guys saying because they're pro patent rights, and yep. so they were against drug reimportation because it undercuts the patent monopoly in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then some of the other Cato guys said, "No, no, no. We we got to be in favor." So, no, but no, the point is. It makes you it makes you choose. Yep. You're incompatible. You can't be in favor of patent rights and free trade. They they conflict with each other. You got to choose. Yep. I know which uh, one I choose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, me too. Me too. Um, yeah, I highly recommend. I'll I'll put a link to to your book against intellectual property uh, on the show notes uh, page. I've I've already taken more time than uh, I said I would of yours, uh, but I do want to give you a chance to plug uh, stuff that you're. Uh, other people, uh, other things that people might want to read by you, uh, projects you're working on, uh, things uh, like that. What's going sure. on? Well, I'm I'm finishing up in the, in the next couple months uh, an edited selection of my essays. It's going to be called "Law in the Libertarian World." That should be out this year. Um, and I'm I'm working on a a new IP book, which will be the previous book plus a bunch of things I've learned argumentatively mm-hmm. in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, so maybe next year or the year after I'll have that out. I'm going to call that copy this book. So I, I'll have a brand new IP book uh, one of these days. So yep. that's my current projects. 
Okay. How do people, uh, do you do Twitter? Uh, people want to find yeah. out more about you, uh, blogs, things like that. So my website, stephankinsella.com. Everything's on there. And I link to my IP site, c4sif.org on there. Mm-hmm. C, the letter four, SIF. Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom.org. I'm, I'm N.S. Kinsella, Norman Stephan Kinsella, N.S. Kinsella on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, great. It's uh, been a pleasure having you on, and uh, uh, it's nice to have you as part of the uh, the Mises Caucus, and uh, uh, look forward to uh, having you around in the discussion group, and uh, I look forward to those books that you just mentioned, so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely get those when they, when they arrive. Thanks, Aaron. Okay, bye. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Stefan Kinsella for his time and wisdom and for making such a great contribution to libertarian thought through his work on IP. I'll link to the free download of his book, Against Intellectual Property, as well as a handful of his articles and talks on the show notes page for this episode at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 46. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.